I'm Dr. Pete Economo, the East Coast psychologist. And I'm Dr. Nikki Rubin, the West Coast psychologist. And this is When East Meets West. Pete, I'm so excited because we have our first guest today. Yay. Woo, yes. <laughs> We've been waiting for this. So uh, we're starting off uh, with our first guest, Dr. Robin Walser, because we're going to be talking about existentialism and behaviorism, specifically acceptance and commitment therapy, which we've obviously talked a lot about on this podcast. So just to give our listeners some info about the wonderful uh, Dr. Walser here, uh, Dr. Walser is the director of TL Consultation Services. She's staff at the National Center for PTSD, and she's an assistant clinical professor um, at the University of California, Berkeley. And as a licensed psychologist, she also maintains an international training, uh, consulting, and therapy practice. So she's a very busy woman here. Um, (laughs) Well, wait till you get to this part. Yeah, wait till you get to this part. Uh, (laughs) Dr. Walser is also an expert in acceptance and commitment therapy known as ACT, and she's authored and co-authored six books. That's the part. part. (laughs) (laughs) On ACT. Her most recent book is The Heart of ACT, Developing a Flexible and Process-Based Practice Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And the other books we're actually going to put in our um, episode description if you guys want to check those out. Um, And then Dr. uh, Dr. Walster has also authored a number of research articles and chapters on top of that um, on acceptance-based interventions. And she's invested in developing innovative ways to translate science into practice, which obviously Pete and I are very into. Yay. So Rob, Robin, welcome. It's so good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you, Peter, and to see you again, Nikki. It's been a while, but it's really nice to be on your vlog, on your show. Oh. Yeah. It's, a, it's our honor. Yes, it's our honor. And I have to say, Thank you know, you. in this being when East meets West, you know, Pete's on the, the East Coast here. Uh, Robin, Robin's on the West Coast team yeah. here, up in the, up in the Bay the West Area. Coast yeah. So scheduling was fun because the time zones always mess all of us up. I know, <laughs> especially in, in today's world. Well, it's really nice, and and that Nikki and Robin go back, and that this is our first time meeting. So it's really a pleasure, honestly. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, yeah. Robin, and I Thank met you. when I was in grad school. It's been like. Gosh, I think I met. It hasn't been that long. Don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, it hasn't. Grad school, been grad school, years. Grad school yeah. wasn't that long, Nikki. It was a lot. It was. It was a while ago. Now I can say it. I can say it. Well, so so let's let's dive into your to existentialism and behaviorism and act. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about this because you know uh, Robin had asked if that would be something we'd be interested in discussing, and I was like. Yes, yes, because this is something actually, and I've never uh, shared this with you, Robin, but I've always explained um, to people that are not in psychology, act as an existential behavior therapy. That's how I describe it, um, because that's how it really resonates with me. And so I'm just, you know, really curious to hear how, you know, just starting off, how do you see these two, you know, on the surface, very different wings of psychology, you know, and lenses overlapping? I know it's a it's a great start question, and I mean there's there's some pieces about existentialism and depending on which philosophers you're reading that don't kind of match up with what ACT is uh, asking of individuals in terms of how they want to approach their lives, their emotions, their thoughts, mm-hmm. their sensations, that kind of thing. But there's a whole piece of it that is quite fascinating and I think lines up well and it has to do with this idea of being conscious and alive Mm. which both existentialism and act pay attention to we're alive and we're aware and inside of that space what meaning are you going to create in your life 
given that from this existential position, we're going to die and you can kind of land in these places where there is no meaning and what is it all about and Mm -hmm. what is existence Mm -hmm. and, um, and acceptance and commitment therapy or act asks the same thing of you. And I actually have a chapter in the heart of act on acceptance and, uh, or act and existentialism. And, uh, I think about it in terms of we have such a short period of time here mm-hmm. and we get kind of caught up in I'll do this when or I'm going to uh, live better when or when I don't feel this anymore, I will that. And time just slips by and we're, we live unconsciously and uh, then we show up at a certain point and we're like, oh, I don't have that much time left. What am yeah. I doing? Right, right. And I want to help bring people into that much more quickly. Like, let's, if you're conscious and alive now, what will you create? What will your meaning be? And both existentialism and ACT ask those questions of us. How, how, do you, how did you arrive at that for yourself? Because I think one of the ways I teach this as a professor is that you have to practice this to preach it. Yeah. Like I think other types of therapies, you don't necessarily have to. So I'm curious what you could share about your own awakening and your own sort of, because I think that's so enlightening to say life is short, you know, and then how do I really get the best out of it? Yeah, um, it probably, I probably had hints of it for a very long time. I can't even recall when I first started thinking about things, these things. I I read some um, books on existentialism in graduate school, mm-hmm. but I'd also thought about these ideas of death. I, you know, my I grew up inside of a fairly religious family, at least when I was young. I, none of them are actually mm-hmm. practicing re- religion anymore, mm-hmm. but the that sort of idea of what's beyond life. Mm-hmm. And so always sort of thinking about these questions of what is there something beyond life is there not and you know just in terms of what is existence and what it's about has I think been filtered uh, throughout my life and sprinkled here and sprinkled there and then when I attended my first ACT workshop and Steve Hayes the developer of ACT um, started talking about meaning these two pieces just sort of came together and I actually did a Although I have to tell you, it wasn't very good. It wasn't very good. I did a, 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 a you know, the exams that you have to take in graduate school to sort of. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The comprehensive. Yeah, oh, the comprehensive. Thank yep. you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I took a comprehensive exam on a behavioral interpretation of existentialism, of existentialism which was. That's so, so cool. Oh, it was a lot yeah. of fun to read and yeah. do. and. Although I wish I would have understand relational frame theory better at the time. Right, yeah. right. Because I think I would have done a much better product. I don't even want to talk to Steve about how I did. He was, <laughs> he was probably, oh, well. That was in the past, though. See, that's yeah, a good thing. We don't yeah, have to worry saying, about it. It's not happening anymore. It's not ha- and, and again, for our listeners, relational frame theory, which we've touched on here, wonderful, wonderful wing of behaviorism, extremely complicated. <laughs> but I broke it down for us before. You liked it. You anyway, we'll you get did. back I to did. it. Yeah. I did. I did. Yeah. 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 And so uh, uh, if I had understood that better, I think I would have, uh, yeah. you know, had a much more sophisticated interpretation. But have loved the way these two sort of weave together 
and how ACT is about living consciously mm-hmm. and creating, living a values-based life and creating meaning. And for, so for those two things, they line right up together. I think there's personal ways in which I've thought about this as well. I've, um, you know, I write about this as well. That and Nikki, you've heard me talk about mm-hmm. this is the passing of my mother, yes, which was um, an incredible uh, experience uh, in terms of the pain that was present inside of that, and sort of thinking that when she passed, like the world should stop. Right, like, mm-hmm. like it shouldn't take another turn. It shouldn't spin another day. And then when it did, I remember like the first couple of nights after she had passed away, like waking up and being like, "What's going on here?" Yeah, yep. <laughs> the world keeps spinning. What's yeah. happening? Mm-hmm. And this sort of recognition of like, I'm still alive, and it's going to keep turning. And what am I going to do? And how will this be? And what will I create? And you know, so even for, so, everything from the academic to the more maybe spiritual or connected to people that I've known passing, people that I care about passing, and seeing that finitude and how boy, it's happening fast. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Let's get yeah. something going here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, it comes to mind when you're saying that too is, and there's obviously we also talk about this and act a lot that in that moment you know, waking up in the middle of the night a few days after your mother had passed, that when the intensity of the grief hits you, that level of pain and the yeah. sort of surprise around, I, I'm, I'm still surviving that. Like, because that's, you know, something I think that just obviously shows up over and over again. And, in, in, you know, in our clinical work, obviously we're talking about, even if you're not in therapy, you're a practicing therapist, that we're afraid of, we're afraid of those feelings, yeah. you know, we're afraid of those feelings. And, also, you know, just I was thinking this a moment ago as well. I think we can also be afraid of of finding meaning because it's like that's something that crosses in my mind too. Like, there's a lot of people that get anxious around existential thoughts. You know, I've had a lot of patients that will get that kind of like, "What does it all mean?" And like, "Oh, the stars and everything feels anxious and scary." And you know, I think that there's also discomfort there too. I don't know what you guys think about that. I absolutely think there can be discomfort there because if you if for if you're discovering meaning and you're not doing anything about it, mm-hmm. it can sort of put you in the, uh, an angst, so to speak, or, mm-hmm. you know, you can get paralyzed by some of those ideas. And when you think about our own, when we think about our own death, mm-hmm. you can approach it in a number of ways. You can get scared and, you know, get busy and, you know, do everything you can mm-hmm. to avoid ideas around it and actually shut down or, you know, turn away from it in such a way that it leads you to more problems, even mm-hmm. um, more anxieties and fears, that kind of thing. Um, if you turn toward it and see it and know, you know, approach it as like another curiosity, another thing that I'm going to experience, mm-hmm. um, it can change things. But there's a freedom in it and there's terrifying thing in it oh right? yeah oh like yeah there's both of those places of um i see this and i and i see it right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah and as we know like people want to avoid it so i think uh, for me so part of the east meets west title is also bringing like the eastern principles from buddhism um so i studied under um robert kennedy 
um, who's in the Buddhist Zen traditions. And I remember loss after studying that the first time. It wasn't my mother yet. My mother is still with me. But even a close person, you think you're supposed to be able to detach because that's even part of the inevitability of death. And you learn that in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. You know, that's part of this existentialism. And yet then you lose someone and feel it. And you're like, wait, oh, I'm human. I'm the, this was, I was the, literally ripped the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, it's like, oh, right. I'm still a, I'm still a person, right? I get a stack. Can't, can't, there's, there's no tool that's going to um, eliminate suffering. This, yeah, that's going to get me out of does. this human. Nothing does. It, it makes me think of my uh, favorite title. I, th- I hope I'm going to get this right. First, the ecstasy and then the laundry. Uh, right. Yeah, right. that's fantastic. You, yeah, you you arrive, and then you got to go do the laundry, and that's you, right. you know, and so there's a process, not an outcome, right? Like we're in a process of consciousness and and loss of conscious living, consciousness and loss of conscious living, and you know, minds are um, have us kind of trapped in this funny place where they're easily pull us into not unconscious living and we have to actually work to come back out and yeah. and you know be present in this kind of buddhist way yeah and to and to maybe be attached like you're saying peter to this uh, idea of someone who you loved or yeah. cared about deeply but not in such a way that you then stop living yourself that's right Right, like that's that's where people get into trouble is they get into grief, which I think can last a lifetime. You can absolutely, yes, yes, yes. Yes. But where the place, where the place is a problem, like we we even have a diagnosis, chronic grief. Yeah, Yeah. which by the way, I find irritating. Yeah, well, if you want, we could do a DSM. Yeah, we could do a we could do do a DSM episode, no problem. Yeah. (laughs) So we're we're with you on that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, of course I'm going to have grief over my mother for the yeah. rest of my life. I love her deeply. Sure. Right? If she's not here, I miss her, that kind of thing. And so sure. when I think about these things, um, you know, like uh, attachment to somebody or something, yeah. it, it's almost like a, a kind of a light attachment. Like it's an mm-hmm. attachment light, I yes. guess, is the way to think <laughs> yeah, about yeah. it. Yes. Where you can, it's not holding you back in some way, but you yeah. can still feel the emotional experience. And I think the the place where people get stuck with it is when they're denying of mm-hmm. what happened, or they don't see a future for themselves based on the loss of someone yeah. or the death. You know, the death of someone they care about is like my life is over. Mm-hmm. When indeed it's not. Like you know, just pinch yourself. You know, mm-hmm. like you're still there and mm-hmm. notice that you're still breathing. Um, your life isn't over and so um, it's just caught up in those ideas Peter that I think you're pointing to that cause the struggle so I have a question just as a as we're talking about this and you know the idea of feeling and then like six books you know like that's so impressive and you know, I wonder because that's suffering too. Yes, it is. <laughs> Let me just put a an exclamation point behind <laughs> behind that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so maybe like talk about your process of writing or or your motivation of writing. I think that would be pretty cool to hear too. Well, um, I don't like the so writing has been a very interesting process for me, and 
I've, I've wanted to share uh, the way I think about things and people have asked me to share it. Like what, you know, talk more about what you're doing in therapy. Let us hear about it and read about it. And I've been invited to share by writing co-author books and that kind of thing. But the writing process for me is not easy. Like I don't like the build up to the writing. But then once I start writing and I'm doing the writing and I'm engaging in the writing, I'm having fun and kind of thinking about ideas and pulling things in and I'll write for, I'm one of those writers that like writes for 12 hours straight. Oh, wow. And and I bail, (laughs) right? And I am, I'm, I leave it for, and then I come back and I Uh do it again. And then, then I'm in pain right up to the writing. (laughs) Uh Right. That's sort of my process for. Writing. I don't know if that's the best way to do it, but I just find myself doing it that well, way. Well, there's certainly no right or wrong way, but obviously it's working. So, I mean, yeah. all of them have been great. So thank you for that. Thank you well, for your I, process. Yes, thank you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, and just to sort of bring us back as, you know, Pete likes to tease me, I, I love to do back she, to existentialism and behaviorism here. Yes, I, I, I do. She's the smart one of the group. <laughs> that's, not, that's not true. Uh, I, the I focused one of the yeah, She's no. focused. <laughs> yeah. Just keeping Tur- us just turning my Just turning my mind, you know, she just does. turning my mind back. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, hearing you talk about even the writing process, right? And you're saying like when you're in it, when you're in that moment and it's something even, you know, to sit down and do it for 12 hours. So that to me speaks that this is something meaningful to you. This is something that you you connect with, even though we're also saying it's really hard and it's a lot of work. And that's the place that I think when people are struggling, they have a hard time understanding how they can cultivate this willingness to to take those steps in these directions right that they they might want to go right obviously in an act we define that as for use the the values language values mm-hmm. clarification and existentialism talking more just about like what is life like what what is meaning so i'm really curious robin how how do you help someone that you know maybe somebody's like i want to write a book but i just you know and it, it makes me excited and and it feels fulfilling the idea of it, but I can't do that. Like if, you know, what do you do when somebody is not able to really understand that it is their connection to their values that can help, help them choose to move forward? Um, well, if we sort of keep this linked up to existentialism, I'm a, if I'm asking your, if, if I'm understanding your question correctly, mm-hmm. uh, I think that I want to turn it over to them. Yeah. Right. Like you do not have to write a book. That's right. Yeah. Right. You know, you, that you can choose, you have the freedom here to write it or not write it. And the question is for you to answer. And if it's something that you care about and find meaningful, will you do the first thing, Mm -hmm. which is write a title or write an abstract or Mm -hmm. write a, sentence you know like it it might be at that at that pace or that level but i want to really stick with that space of you get to pick Mm. and there's all kinds of ways to live a life you can live a life as somebody who's always wanted to write a book Mm -hmm. you can live a life as somebody who's sort of written a book i love (laughs) that yeah you can live a life as somebody who has written 10 books or 45 books or whatever the case might be it's 
there's all kinds of ways to do it. And I want you to feel free to, to move into whichever way. The only thing I would maybe, you know, to get to your question a little bit is like, will you be okay with the choice that you make? Mm. Right. And will you, uh, maybe there's one more, uh, how long will you wait to make it? Because not making it is a choice itself, right? If the choice is something different than this way of life, it's this way of life, right? That Yeah. Well, so I think that's really interesting, that second part you're saying about like, you know, the not making the choice is a choice in and of itself. Because I definitely find, and I'm curious if you guys have this too, you know, I've asking somebody, will you be okay with it? Sometimes... I find that people get stuck there because they, you know, they want to own the outcome. They want to know. I want to know if I take this step, it's going to turn out okay. And I'll say like, we don't have that information. We only have what you know in this moment, right? Like that's the values based living is taking healthy risks. But that idea of like, I, if you choose not to, you're, you're also making a choice. Like that's very interesting to me. And I think that's something maybe a lot of people don't think about. Yeah. Well, and the, the, the something that you said kind of reminded me of this is like, I'm not making that choice. And will I get the outcome I want? And mm-hmm. who knows? Yeah. Right. Like, we don't know. You could write a whole book and nobody wants to publish it. You could publish it yourself. And the outcomes are uh, uh, like many. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We do know one thing. We do know one outcome. You are going to die. <laughs> That's right. Right. <laughs> right? Like, well, that let's is, come back to that. Yeah. You we well, are going to die. And so. Death and we, taxes, only certain certain thing, right? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, So if you're conscious and alive, what life will you create? And uh, we should be asking ourselves that routinely. And we tend to ask it when we've experienced something painful or when somebody yes. or some uh, yeah. uh, or uh, some um critter that we care about mm-hmm. passes or falls ill or gets cancer sure. or something like that. And then we get sort of pushed up against mortality. Maybe there's something good about not being pushed against mortality routinely, but you know, if you can sort of take that spark, like I'm going to connect with my kids or I'm going to yeah. connect and do these things. I'm going to make the, like if you could bring that into your every day, yeah. just a little bit more things will start to unfold uh, for you in a different way. And you could look back and say, yeah, I, I did it. I, I did this thing. Well, sort of like asking, like, will you regret if you don't? You know, and I think that that's value-directed mm-hmm. living. So for me, existentialism is synonymous with values. Mm-hmm. And I, I think of, I like these brought about growing up in a really religious house because I think these are one of these multicultural things that we don't want to talk about. You know, we can't talk about a dinner. And I find myself, I talk a lot about spirituality and religion. And so I work primarily with high performers and athletes and they bring spirituality and religion in their work. Mm -hmm. And so we'll talk about what does the word mean for you? What did you, what, what, what text did you read this morning? And really bringing that into the, to the work. So I wonder if you find space for that also, like in the supervision, I know you write about a lot about that, but just the role of having grown up in a super religious or a highly religious place and then how that translates into the clinical work. And it does align really well with ACT. I wonder, what what do you say about that? Yeah, no, this is a very interesting um, place that I think that we as um, clinical psychologists have abandoned because we're afraid. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like the, like we've been so 
like focused on if we don't make ourselves out to be a science and spirituality and science don't line up, then somehow we're we're not scientists, which is yeah. you know, if I can be so bold please do bullshit, <laughs> right? Thank <Then> you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading your mind. <laughs> yeah. Right? Just, just say it. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, you can you can completely be a scientist and nurture a spirituality and talk to your clients about those things. You know, I, I do uh, work at the VA, as you well know, and yeah. the, many of the clients that I work with there are quite spiritual and yeah. have religious. And I, uh, should I just ignore that? No. When it's part of no. what I know is impacting no. their behavior and the way they go, like I, I need to be prepared and want yeah. folks to be able to talk about spirituality well, that's in a why, way that, yeah. yeah well that's why i'm sorry that's why i love third wave and just any cbt because like i was trained with like mostly psychodynamic professors and so they would be like well leave yourself at the door and like now i'm like what is now knowing what yeah. i know today yeah. and especially especially around this because honestly i'm i i encourage conversations around religion in clinical work i think it's beautiful like yeah yeah and and to say that's not science is i think is avoidance because it's 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 a lot more challenging to talk about that than it is to talk about you know that two plus two equals four yeah no i i want to know how you leave yourself at the door peter yeah good luck good luck luck with that You just meet me, you see it's hard. Yeah, for, yeah I was going to say. <laughs> I never get understood know, that. Get to know him even better and you'll see. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, yeah. You know, and the, I was thinking too, it's like this idea of of being afraid of spirituality too. It's like, I mean, I honestly, and I'm sure there's people that disagree with me when I say this, but to me, values and spirituality are are intertwined. And I, I personally came to a being more connected to spirituality through my training to become a psychologist. I was sort of somebody that I've talked about this on this podcast before. I was more like science, 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 and I'm going to be a behaviorist. And that's, that's still true. I still, I still love data and facts and, and behaviorism. And yet it was actually through my training in mindfulness practices and act specifically that brought me to honestly a spirituality and an openness to that. I actually just wrote about it for this little online magazine simple practice does um and yeah i just like to me those things are one and the same you know i'm sure it's not the the that way for everybody but i sometimes like describe it to patients as like values are your insides and when i say like i feel spiritual i i don't know i'm they're synonyms to me yeah well there's you can see in our world today what has happened by making this clear division between science yeah. and spirituality. It has led some to think that these guys are not right and they're mm-hmm. wrong, and it's led this side to believe they're uh, right they're right, and we're wrong, like, like science versus right. spirituality. And you see it unfolding in our politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you see it unfolding in the way people relate to each other. And I sort of think, like, what? have we done here by separating them out and categorizing them in such a deep way that why, you know, there is a place here where we can um, understand spirituality and Mm -hmm. look at how it influences and impacts our life. Um, It's through spirituality that many of our values arise, right? And that we're thinking about how to treat each other and what's important Yes. And so let's 
examine that. You know, let's bring science to that and the behavior of spirituality and how it helps us and that kind of thing. And maybe not be so afraid of each other and so limiting in some way. Um, I, I worry about what this split has mm-hmm. to offer us as we, mm-hmm. as people, you know, grow further and further apart in these ways. And we, we in our country are seeing this, right? And we it's, are. Uh, it, it's, I think, a very unfortunate place where, where somehow we can't talk to each other now. Well, I, it's, you this know. is, I had a student just this week, so I'm teaching one of the courses, LGBTQ psychology science, and he is from, um, the Middle East and he, you know, of a predominantly Muslim country. And when we had this conversation about multiculturalism and just within the queer theory of psychology, he said the same exact thing you just said of like, I wish I would have, I wish I, I wish they created space so that they both could exist together because I was always told that they couldn't. And he's deep in the faith of Islam. And so for him, he was trying to find a place of both that faith of Islam, but also the, the, the faith of like just other spirituality and otherness and or even just psychology or certainly lgbtq because it's it's condemned so uh i feel like we're trying to help i think act tries to help find i mean certainly in buddhism we talk about the middle path um i feel like we're always trying to do that with and so it's beautiful how you just put that so you can hear it right you can hear it in here this there's a middle path in here where yeah we don't have to be caught up in right and wrong we can be maybe caught up in understanding and compassion and listening and hearing and what does science say and what does spirituality say and where do we meet and, you know, all those kinds of things that are about instead of division, you know, uni- unity and yeah. coming together. When for, and I'm going to use a word that used early uh, on in our talk here, Robin, is freedom, right? That yeah. the openness and the expansiveness that this idea when we get really curious and make room for all of the perspectives, right? As many perspectives as possible that then this idea of, you know, this existential question, like what's the meaning of life? Like what, it, like you said, like, I love what you said. You'll ask a patient, well, let me, what does it mean to you? There's, there's infinite possibilities here. Yeah, no, agreed. And um, I mean, of course we can't choose to be rich. We understand those mm-hmm. things, right? That the, um, the context matters. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, when you look at individuals like Viktor Frankl, who made the choice to stay in the concentration camp, because that's where his meaning was, that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that you can say, I want to be rich and then be rich. It's that you've got a context and what are you going to do inside that context that I think Mm -hmm. is, is very important. So when I think about what I'm trying to convey in some parts of the heart of ACT and the work inside of ACT, and existentialism is the the creating something that is meaningful, vital, connected as you move through your life. And I talk about it in terms of like, are you going to look at the menu or eat everything <laughs> on it? <laughs> right? Are you going to just like... We're so good at metaphors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you, I love you it. can't I love taste it. the menu. you got to <laughs> order the stuff. Yeah. And, right. and, and maybe you don't like some of what you eat, but taste it anyway. Yes. Like those, Like that kind of process. And I guess when I was about 20... Um, I had been struggling a little bit and um, my mom was just getting into email and she sent me um, this uh, little saying that has just stuck with me forever. And I 
I want to read it for you guys as a as a way to just find to wrap up. This is by uh, Hunter S. Thompson, and the quote is: uh, "Life should not be a journey to the grave, with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke." thoroughly used up totally worn out and loudly proclaiming wow what a ride this has been when east meets west i'm dr nikki rubin and i'm dr pete economo be present be brave This has been When East Meets West. All material is based on opinion and educational training of Drs. Pete Economo and Nikki Rubin. Content is for informational and educational purposes only.